and welcome to the Essential Property Podcast with your hosts, Paul Samuda and Amanda Woodward. With 45 years of combined experience in the world of property buying, selling, investing and developing, they are here to share with you their knowledge in the Stoke-on-Trent, Newcastle-under-Lyme and Crew property market. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Essential Property Podcast, where we discuss all things property related within Crewe, Stoke and Newcastle areas of the country. My name is Amanda Woodward and I'm pleased to have with me Karishma Davdra and Salik Rashid, who are both successful property investors and developers based in Cheshire. In this property developer special, Karishma and Salik share their commercial to residential strategy along with the success and challenges along the way. So welcome Salik and welcome Karishma. Hi Amanda. Hi Amanda. Hi guys, really good to have you on the podcast. So we're doing a special in and around development and properties that are being converted to residential property from commercial. And I know that you guys have some great experience in that department. So I'm really excited to ask you some questions and share with our listeners those that are interested in that particular strategy across the country, but more specifically in and around Crew, Stoke and Newcastle under Lyme. But just to give our listeners a feel for who you guys are, if you could just kick off with a little bit of an intro, a little bit about your background and ultimately what was your motivation to move into property investment and property development? Hi guys, thank you for having us Amanda, really happy to be on. So a little bit a bit about me first. So why I got into property was mainly because I wanted to start a business. I've always been a little bit business-minded. Although I went to university and got a degree in accounting and finance, I genuinely deep down wanted to do something in business and probably kind of fell in under my lap, actually, a little bit while thinking about it, but also while Krishma, who took me to a seminar, which got my juices flowing. And that's why I chose to do property. It was something that allowed me to you know, build a business and build assets at the same time. So it helped me to understand how to build a business and make profit at the same time. Good stuff. Yeah, so I'm just going to follow on from what Sally was saying there. So it's kind of similar in terms of the motivation behind it. I wanted to get into property simply because I wanted to do things differently, differently to what I'd seen my parents do. Same thing, so I went to university, got a degree, and then really struggled to get a job, which kind of really demotivated me and then made me realise that actually, why am I putting myself through all this stress, trying to get a job and being rejected? And also, during that time, I also realised that working for someone else was quite hard. I was basically growing their business. So alongside working in corporate life, I was also working with Salik and we were building the property business, which was quite an eye opener. And I could see light at the end of the tunnel. It made me realise that actually this is not the corporate life wasn't going to be for the rest of my life. It was a bridge to kind of get me to where I wanted to be in terms of property and then transition out. And we had a plan and um, I didn't have to kind of work my way up the ladder and grow my income that way. So same thing with Salik what Salik said, like building income and assets. And property was always something that my parents said, you know, is a good investment. Like it's 
you know, buy your first house, but I never kind of understood how to do it or where to start. So I ended up going on like a property training course. And then from the back of that, we kind of built our portfolio and here we are today. Fantastic. That's a great intro, guys. So fast forward a couple of years, you know, you got into property, you started looking around, one would assume the whole of the UK in terms of where's our first deal going to be or where's our investment area going to be. So how did Crew and Stoke come to the table? So yeah, we visited quite a few places. I think off the top of my head, we went to Leicester, Reading, Coventry, West Bromwich, Dudley, quite a number of places. But what I found about property is you need to surround yourself with people that really know what they're doing, especially at the beginning, and build yourself a good team. So off the back of the training that we did, we found um, that we connected with quite a few good people. And eventually ran into actually yourself, Amanda and, and Paul Samuda, who showed us around Stoke on Trent very kindly and allowed us to kind of get a good feel of the place. And that gave us comfortability to kind of, you know, set ourselves a goal to kind of start building a portfolio there. Just to add on to the back of what Salik said, so the numbers for us worked in that area as well. And what I mean by that is... When we started out, Salik was in the property business full time and then I was working still full time. So like our mortgageability and access to finance was kind of restricted to our circumstances then. But, you know, investing in Stoke-on-Trent and crew and that sort of area, the numbers in terms of lending and the value of the houses kind of stacked up. So that's why we kind of stayed in that area. And also we had people that we could reach out to like yourself and Paul if we needed advice or support or if we weren't quite sure about something because you were more experienced in that area than we were when we were starting out. Yeah I remember that around about six years or so ago and we invested in the area for very similar reasons you know the numbers worked the numbers stacked up and and they still do today and we see it as a you know a great investment area, both Stoke and Crew, for a number of different strategies. I'd be interested just to hear in terms of when you first came to Stoke and Crew, you know, you had a look around, you had a look at what some other people were doing as well. What was the initial strategy? Did you follow that? And what did you end up doing for your first few years in the area? So for us, like I explained, Salik was in the property business full time. So we only had literally one source of income, which was me. So for us, building that cash flow and building a higher cash flow pot or figure, should I say, was quite important. So we went straight into HMOs and that was our strategy. So we want enough income coming in from the property side of the business as well so that it could replace um, Salix expenses as quickly as possible. So that's kind of what we started off with. My expenses. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was our expenses. Our expenses. I think that sounds like quite a nice strategy if I had somebody building a business to replace my expenses. That sounds fantastic, Seth. <laughs> no, I totally understand. I totally understand. So I think it's fair to say that HMOs in and around Stoke and Crew have had a bit of a journey of themselves over the last few years. So how did you find that strategy initially? How has it worked today? Just give us our listeners sort of an idea of, of how, how you have found investing in HMOs in, in the area. I think initially when we started, there was a lot less regulations and the purchase price weren't as bad because not as many people were looking into it. Uh, Whereas at the moment, the uh, market has moved on and it's a lot more competitive. Things like HS2 has brought a lot more investors from down south up and that's increased the competition. 
But we see it as a positive, really, even though it's pushed up prices, it's made us make a better product for tenants. So I think initially we had products which we would not be happy with having now, but we've developed them and we've added on to newer projects where we're providing a better service for our tenants. And I think generally they are happier with that kind of level of service. And along with that, the prices that we've charged has gone up as well. So initially we didn't have one suites and now we do. And that's something that people do like because, you know, sanity is something that people do look for. And um, if they can have their own bathroom, uh, it's peace of mind kind of thing for them. And they're more than happy sharing kitchens usually, as long as we have a system to get them cleaned on a regular basis. Yeah. Yes. So, but yeah, just to expand on what Salik said, I, I don't think like the properties have changed, but the level of service that you provide to the tenants and just the, the, the finish. So it's not really like the structure or the layout. It's more like the colour of the walls and like the, the actual soft furnishings, all of that sort of like the appeal and the look. It's a bit more, you have to dress it a little bit more so that you attract the right type of tenant, the right type of rent that you're looking for, because people are willing to pay a little bit more if the product is that little bit nicer. Yeah, absolutely. I think what Salik was saying about regulations in terms of in the last, since 2018, we've gone from no licenses to licensing. In crew, we've gone from no Article 4 now to Article 4. We've just had general nationwide improvements when it comes to energy performance electrical certification just everything is just moving up and as you say that's great because it builds just a better experience for the tenants in the houses Um, of course we can you know increase our rents with regards to that and I know you guys I think when we first met it was like we love HMOs and then a few years after it was like I think we're done with HMOs and now it's like we love HMOs again so I think we go through cycles in terms of the market and that's just the market that we're in we have peaks and troughs we have you know high demand times we have like lulls but I think looking over the last six years generally I think we've all fared pretty well with our HMO portfolios so that's obviously worked very very well for you guys and then you've moved on to other developments or you've started to bring in other strategies to your business in and around the commercial to residential conversions which is really exciting and the theme with the podcast today so just share with us a little bit about how you sort of transitioned into that and why you decided to go down that road so I think we sat down and we evaluated where we were in, in terms of our portfolio. And when we looked at our property portfolio, it was very skewed towards HMOs. And we did regret at the beginning, actually, not going into more bike-lets because we kind of almost viewed every property as a HMO, possibly missing out on quite a few opportunities, turning them into quick bike-lets. So what we did, we ended up selling some uh, properties that didn't quite work for us or didn't quite fit us, our needs and reuse that capital into going into commercial conversions and the reason we went into commercial conversions mainly was because even though the process is a lot longer and a lot more difficult it allowed you to get multiple of bike-lets into one property rather than doing six seven deals at the same time and getting the same amount of units yeah so it was basically just trying to bulk buy but it was difficult to bulk buy and also get a bmv or get a a property where we could add value and make the numbers work. So if we did commercial to residential conversion, we could get 
those numbers and those ROIs to stack up and would still end up with the same outcome in terms of six bytelets, let's say, for example. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Okay, I like that because I think bytelets are, you know, they are the, the little soldiers in the portfolio, aren't they? They just sit there quietly. And yeah. if you're doing that in bulk, I think that, that sounds like a good strategy. That was the plan on paper. Um, that was the strategy. So has that worked out? And, you know, what was what was the first step? What was the first deal like? What does that look like? Yeah, I'd say it's worked out really well for us, actually. We worked um, alongside a coach who basically helped us along the way. And that's that was really vital for us because they allowed us and gave us the confidence to go into deals like that. Because yeah. there are a lot more pitfalls when you go up into um, the commercial conversion and strategy, for sure. So, yeah, I think it's worked really well. So we've done two commercial conversions. And from both of those, we've created 11 units and I see them as 11 vitalets, essentially. So it's 11 flats. So instead of going out buying 11 vitalets, we've just done it in bulk. And we've both we've finished both of them now. And they've both been letted out now. Um, and we've actually let them out on long leases. But moving from like HMOs to commercial to residential, you're kind of relearning everything again because everything is completely different. Refurb's different. The way you calculate your numbers is different. The cost of the refurb is different. The materials, the teams that you work with. So we had to kind of re-educate ourselves and learn everything from scratch again. Funnily enough, we did two conversions and the second one, which we agreed, was completed before the first one that we agreed because we were still learning lots from the first one. But we can go into a little bit more detail about all of that if you want us to sure so the so i know for sure one of them was in crew perhaps tell us a little bit about the the crew one initially and how that worked out yeah krishma found that deal as she finds most of our deals she's very much front-loaded in, in our business and this one's actually on nantwich road it which is one of the main roads in crew it's an old office building that was on the market for i believe one eight five thousand pounds initially the Offer we put in was 150. We were thinking about either turning it to HMO or, and that would be like 10 different rooms or converting into flats. But we did want to go down the flat route, really. Our offer actually didn't get accepted and someone else had come in and put a higher offer in and away they went. And I think it was a year later that it came back onto the market. Yeah. A year later and two sales fallen through. Wow. That, that was for a variety of reasons, but we went back, we went we went in to look at the property, the agent had remembered us, um, and then we went in and we put in two two offers. Because it was a year later and we were confirmed in our strategy of uh, flats, we wanted to show them that we were we knew what we were doing. And we said, we can put in an offer of £150,000 uh, if we can convert it into six flats, or we'll offer you 125 if we convert it into five flats. And they were actually really happy with that. Um, so we went away, we did our work with the architect and established that the maximum we could get would be five flats uh, and offered them £125,000 and that was accepted. And so that was accepted. And because it was an office, we didn't have to put in full turning up. We just had to do PD. So the costs were reduced and the time frame of getting it approved was also reduced the previous people that were trying to buy the property and then it had fallen through for whatever reason, they had already put in a PD app for 
I think it was five apartments, but it was a completely different layout, didn't work for us. So we knew that, you know, it, it would be accepted on our different layout. And then we were happy with that. So the offer was accepted and away we went. And then we were about to complete. So th- there was lots of delays from the vendor's side in terms of like the, the solicitor process and the conveyancing. We were about to complete and then lockdown hit. It was just the beginning of COVID. And there was quite a lot of uncertainties. We didn't really know where we stood in terms of would we hold, we'd be holding this property for a year before we can get builders in. We didn't know. It was just the beginning of the lockdown. So we just went back to them because we were cash buyers. We went back to the vendors and said, look, we're happy to uh, still proceed on this, but you'd have to kind of give us three to six months until we know what's going on before we complete. And they said, you know, that's too long, can't wait that long. And I said, okay, fine, we'll complete now, but we'll only be able to complete at 100 grand. And I need to keep an extra, you know, contingency pot in case I need to pay for whatever it is. And they were happy with that. So we actually ended up buying it for 100 grand. I mean, that is an absolute steal. You stole that property. (laughs) (laughs) That's like a fantastic deal. Yeah, we get told that a lot. Um, We got a really good price on that. And it's just basically the circumstances and being there at the right time. And it was genuine. Like we were happy to pay the one two five if they waited a little bit longer, but yeah. they didn't want to wait. So yeah, we bought it for one hundred, and then we had planning submitted straight away. And within fifty six days, it was hmm. we had it approved PD on the fifty six days, and then we had a build team uh, ready to go to start. And yeah, Sally took over from there. Yeah, so a little bit about psychology. Why I think the offer was accepted at hundred thousand pounds because business owners generally they don't want to be paying business rates on an empty property. They don't want to be paying bills um, and um, all of that stuff, uh, having maintained a property. The other thing is they've moved out of the premises for a reason. They want to carry on that business, but they want to focus on that. They don't want to have that lingering on. So I think that's why they actually ended up saying, you know what, just take the property off our hands. We won't have any costs on it uh, and we can move on and you can move on. So there are opportunities out there definitely for um, that kind of strategy for people that are looking for that for sure. And I think you were definitely a little bit of trailblazers in that department because I think since your development, which is a lovely development, I drive past it all the time and always have a little look. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I always like to just have a little look at the front door. And that's Salican Christmas development there. There's probably been about four or five other very nice developments that have taken place, flat developments on Nantwich Road as well. And it's really lifted the road. Not that it wasn't a nice road. It's like the main road coming down from the station in Crewe. But it has just really lifted all these different developments everyone's done like a, a really good job so I think that's um that's great for any high street because as we know the high streets are not having a, an amazing time at the moment so we've got some nice commercial and then in and around that we've got dotted some really nice residential as well so we've definitely done a great job in that department so let's talk about Selick's favorite subject and also my favorite subject which is builders yay <laughs> going into a flat conversion obviously you said you had started the other one so builders aren't new to you development certainly aren't new to you but what is different when you are going for that first sort of small commercial conversion so I think for a small conversion, especially, you definitely want a builder that's done it before and been there and you can see their product because what goes into a development is 
completely different to what goes into a refurbishment. There's regulations involved, so building control get involved that need to make sure that X, Y, and Z is, is done before they can sign it off. They work very closely with the builder to make sure you know it, it's fire safe um, and things are constructed in a, in the right manner. Um, the architect is involved um, because things do change as the building goes along, and there will be um, things that crop up, and you may need to adjust a few things which happened in this development. Um, and also there's something called PCC sign-off, which we need to get for um, our mortgage provider to make sure that you know it's mortgageable and what we've done is actually what we said we would do. It's actually very similar to building control, but it has to be done by an independent person. Um, so it could be an architect, uh, but this one was actually done by an engineer that we worked with closely. Actually, no, the Nantwich one, we did it with the architect. Yeah. Done. But yeah, going back to builders, it's definitely someone that's been there and done it before. Uh, we'd actually gone to his development that he was just finishing and he showed us around uh, very happily. Um, and this is something he was doing quite regularly in and around the Stoke and Crew area. And uh, so we felt comfortable around that. And also he had a team behind the scenes for any admin work, for if there was any problems, we could email or if there... Uh, if there was any invoices that they were due that they would be following up which meant that that was kept on the side and he didn't have to deal with that and that that keeps his mind clearer to get on with the job he also had a number of tradesmen within his business so it's not contractors that he brings in it's within his business that he will um, rely upon to do a lot of the works uh, uh, for sure Um, that allows us a lot more confidence to basically know that the work will be of a high standards and it will go from A to Z a lot more uh, free-flowingly than maybe a refurbishment where contractors come in sparingly sometimes uh, when they can make it. Yeah, and just to add to that, obviously the recommendation came from you and uh, Paul. So we knew that you know he, he was a good builder in like, his quality and level of work. Yeah. And even though he'd done like a slightly different project for you guys, for that the builder himself did what we were doing day in, day out for himself. Yeah. So he was already delivering what we wanted for himself and we went to see one of his own projects. So it was um, great to get someone like that on board with that experience. I don't know about you, Salik, but I, thought, I felt that working with a build team on like a commercial level, this sort of level, like it's more of a breeze. I don't know why, but it was pretty much we handed them the keys in the morning and then we went in later that afternoon and, you know, the the property was already being stripped out. Like it was pretty much looking very different. Uh, Things were moving quicker than we could inspect, which is very different to like small HMO conversions. The speed of work and the number of people in the team is completely different. It's a different scale, I think. Yeah, he goes off the back of the architectures and building control drawings for sure, um, which help him. Um, and when he needs to ask us questions, he would certainly ask us questions in terms of towards the end, it was about where sockets are going and uh, if things were being adjusted in terms of the showers. But as Krishna said, the speed of work was a lot quicker from his side, which uh, was, a, was a good, smooth transaction. There's, there's less involvement than when you're trying to like manage a HMO and different contractors. I thought it was easier and less stress (laughs) that sounds good and I would concur in terms of when you you know improve the level of your team 
you do have a much better experience. There's always that issue, isn't there, in terms of cost, in terms of getting the right guys in. And sometimes the projects just don't quite allow for it. But I think we've both found there someone who can mix the good service alongside a competitive price, which can be rare. So I think uh, we definitely found found a gem there. That's not always the case, though, as I know, as you guys know. And you said you wouldn't mind sharing a scenario which was slightly different. And we'd love to know how you overcame come some challenges in the builder department on a on a similar or actually, I think, slightly larger project. Yeah, so as Krishna mentioned previously, we'd actually uh, already purchased a pub. Um, this wasn't in the Wrexham, uh, this wasn't in the crew area. It was actually in a town called Wrexham. And what had happened is basically we'd found a builder, which we were initially very happy with. We'd established the refurb and the costs that were involved. But what was going in the background, the builder that we were talking to was part of a business in a trio. And unfortunately, they weren't getting on on the background. And from our understanding, one of them was stifling uh, resources away from uh, the business, which basically made the business uh, insufficient in terms of the building firm. We didn't know about any of this until, I'd say, six weeks into the project. And that then initially, initially came out. The director found out about that uh, and then started contacting us. And what was a red light moment for us was when the director was chasing us for money when works hadn't been done. And that was like a light bulb moment. Hold on a minute. Something's not quite right here. And what happened is basically they'd split ways and the company had started going into liquidation. So unfortunately, we got um, drawn into that. And that wasn't the most pleasant experience that we'd had. That's partly why that project took a lot longer. Yeah, and, and on the back of that, we did, you know, lose a chunk of cash um, and money because we had paid the first tranche up front because of the materials and that's what the agreement we had with them because they couldn't support the cash flow of the project. So, I mean, looking back at it, you know, there were red lighters, there were, you know, gut instincts which we didn't follow and now we know that actually things have to be on our terms. If we're not comfortable with it, we don't agree to it. And if it doesn't work for us, then we just walk away. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a, a very expensive lesson that we learned there. But we did uh, turn it around and found um, another builder, another project manager, and they took it on. And there was a lot of work that had to be undone. They created more mess at the property. So, And this project was completely different to the one that we did in Crew, because the Crew project was pretty much using the existing building as it was and just creating internal walls. Um, not much structural changes, a few, but not a load. And in the pub, we had a lot of structural changes going on. So it was pretty much kind of bringing it back to bare four walls and then kind of building up the inter- internal structure all over again. So there was a lot more work. Then that took a, lot, a little bit longer. And then we were starting that refurb in the middle of the pandemic. And it just took a little bit longer. But we just kind of went with it and we, we didn't rush it. We took our time with it and uh, we got it over the line. And it's now fully rented on a five-year lease with the council and it's occupied and it's, you know, worked out all well. And we've just had a valuation on it and the valuation that came back on the property was 
significantly higher than what we anticipated when we actually purchased the property. Now, it's taken us like quite a long time to get it to where it is now. So we bought the property in 2018, but there was significant delays with planning because this one actually went to committee and it wasn't a PD. So it had to go to planning and then it went to committee, which took quite some time in itself. And then we had the whole fiasco with, you know, the builders kind of going into liquidation and then hitting the pandemic and then trying to find a new builder in the pandemic to take over. But full circle, we're pretty much going to be refinancing and pulling out most of our money, including that chunk that we lost. So it's worked out. It's all worked out. That's that's good news to hear in the end. And I think anyone who who is brave enough to try new strategies and do new things and take on more risk to get more rewards it's just part of being in business. So I think you've been really transparent in that department. And then obviously you've got property number two that's worked sort of exceedingly well. And onwards from there, I think you mentioned there's another, there's another, there was another little small commercial deal that worked out quite well, also in crew. So I'd like to hear about that one as it's in crew. So this was a ground floor building, just the shop bit. Um, I think originally it was a milkshake place and before that it was a post office. So I'd gone through a few different retailers uh, and probably not worked that well and um, it's located on a residential area as well so it's very few you know few commercial places that would actually work there so we'd actually bought it because it was so long to convert it into two different separate flats bought it again unconditional as you can probably see there's a theme here we're very risk uh, risky and we do buy things uh, without getting um, planning on them but anyway we went into this wheel for two flats one studio and one one bedroom uh, and it fitted perfectly. And because it had been a commercial, we thought it'd fly through because there'd be less traffic because of two flats rather than the commercial building. But there was some objections uh, along with over. So one of the objections was overdevelopment. And I think there was something about parking. And what's the space outside? Amenity space. Amenity space. Mm-hmm. Because of that, the council had come back and refused the two flats. And uh, we w- went back to the architect, had a good think about it and then put it in for planning again for one flat. We do always have second exit in our deals that we go into. And this was the second exit, even though we wouldn't pull out as much money and we would um, cash flow less, it still uh, worked for us in terms of our our ROI. So going forward, we were arming and eyeing about this. And because of the market moved on so, so much, we thought, let's try it and sell the property. I think we initially bought it for £50,000 with a few buying costs here and there. And we'd uh, agreed to sell it for £70,000. And we were chuffed with that. Um, well, I was chuffed with that anyway. Uh, I thought, you know, a, a quick buck and, we, and we'd move on, use that capital again in, into another development. But Krishma, she works very closely with some people in a different industry, which I'll let her uh, talk about. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is the right platform to share all of that on. But anyway, so it's like, I guess it's like a business coach. And um, she basically told me that I should look at other opportunities with this property and maybe reconsider our options and not sell this. So we held out a little while and then an opportunity kind of came about itself. So the flats that we were talking about up the road on Nantwich Road, a charity had taken them on. But when we were in initial discussions with them, they were talking about converting the top two flats on the first floor within that building into their office space. And then we were umming and ahhing. And then I, was, I wasn't I was really comfortable with that because then we'd have to go through 
the change of use class and all of that, which was just more paperwork, additional faff. And then if there were to like leave the premises at any point, we'd have to convert it back to resi. And it was just a faff. And I was just like, this doesn't feel right. However, I've got another commercial unit up the road, which hasn't been converted yet. So do you want to have a look at that? And maybe you can use that as offices. They had a look at it, they loved it, and then they took it. So it all worked out. And we didn't convert it into flats and we left it as it is. So the refurb was quite minimal. Uh, let's have it share the numbers behind that because that's his department. But it all worked out. They've taken on, on a long lease, the same sort of lease that they've taken the building of the flats on for. And now they've got a base and they're happy with it and it cash flows great. So Salik will talk to you the numbers. Yeah, in total, I'd say we probably spent £6,000 on the whole refurbishment of the building. It's now a office building, which they really enjoy. I went in there the other day because we need to get measurements um, for it. And there's about six or seven of them loving it um, because they finally got a base to actually work from. And because they've grown into this area, they've got a place to go to, to you know, actually navigate, um, talk, communicate, brainstorm, bring clients in and all that and that's really vital for them to have the cash so they've actually rented it on a higher market higher than market value uh, we were offered when we were holding it we were actually being asked to rent it to other individuals and they were asking for about 550 per calendar month the chariots actually because we converted it for them to for the specific needs they've rented it from us for 800 pounds and yeah it's, it's amazing and in the commercial building uh, we don't have to do as much as a residential building, uh, which allows us a lot more hands off. So all we have in the property is about £55,000, maybe £56,000 of our money. 50000 is angel money, uh, which we're giving them a monthly return for. And the remainder is just our funds that we've built up over a period of time. And we are happy to keep that in. And after costs all in, we're probably cash flowing just about £650. So £650 from a property that is you know what fifty five thousand pounds you can work out the ri on that but it's it's and and it's the same cash flow or similar cash flow that we would have got from two flats good so it all worked out in the end end. i think it's actually higher than what we would have got from two flats and probably a small hmo without the hassle of uh, you know some what hmos can sometimes bring good stuff so you spoke a lot about the council there so was a lease a long-term lease with the council, social housing providers, was that always part of your strategy from the from the get-go? So with the one that we did in Wrexham, yes. After like the development had started, I was already in early conversations with a different provider, not the one that's already taken, it was a different provider. So that was the plan for that one. And then for the one in Crewe, I was you know, actively hunting during the refurb for someone to take it on a long-term lease but I was just struggling to find anyone or there was not many people kind of responding and then this provider was actually introduced to us by our builder yeah so it all worked out in that sense but yeah the initial plan was to kind of try and make it as hands-off as possible so long lease contracts was kind of what we were looking for but and if we didn't get that that was fine as well because the private sector was very busy as well and we had we did kind of do like a a viewing day because we weren't sure which way to go and we wanted to make sure like the demand was there as well and we had a lot of interest on the private sector as well so 
either way, it worked out and it was going to be a winner either way, which way we took. So we just decided to kind of go with the hands-off approach. Yeah, so I'll just add to that. Um, what Krishna probably hasn't highlighted as much as the persistence that she had to actually find these providers and, and working with the council. We'd, Krishna had already contacted um, the provider that the builder had, had recommended, but they hadn't come back to us, um, along with a number of others. And through persistence, she finally got to the right person, which she could engage with, have a conversation with, and then move on from there. And again, with the council, it was a lot of back and forth, back and forth. And although we had the option to do a um, private uh, rental with individuals, we wanted to work with um, specific companies and groups of people, which just meant that we could give it to one company or business or, or the council, which meant we had one tenant effectively, but also it allowed us to kind of grow our business um, if we wanted to, you know, pass them on more properties and more uh, and grow our business really in that way. Yeah, and just to add to that, working or trying to secure contracts with these people requires a lot of patience, like a lot of patience, <laughs> um, because they're really slow and there's lots of like tape, there's lots of red tape that this person needs to sign it off and that person needs to sign yeah. it off and it's always another week on a, and you've got to kind of look at the long term rather than the short term. Yes, we had the properties empty for about six to eight weeks and we could have had them rented straight away or we, we waited and kind of had a longer term contract. And also to add to that, looking at long lease contracts on any type of property, you just, you're quite limited to lending as well because you have to get specialised lending. So that's kind of like a factor to consider as well in terms of, you know, are you willing to kind of jump through all those hoops on the back end for your lending as well? So just kind of have that at the back of your mind and, you know, make an informed decision based on all that information. So I've got a question for you. You're a few commercial conversions in a few stories along the way, but generally a, a good successful start in, in that strategy. So if a building comes along and it's uh, big enough for 15 flats, 20 flats, 25 flats, would that be something that would excite you and you'd go for? What's next in terms of this strategy for you guys? We might have different answers on this. <laughs> I think what I'll go back to is, you know, if you've done a conversion, if it's five flats, 10 flats, it's fairly similar with a few more additional kind of difficulties. But if something came along and it was 20, 25 flats, it wouldn't deter me at all. Because at the end of the day, you're project managing one unit, one set of architect team, one set of um, building firm, um, and it allows you to kind of focus on that one project rather than maybe two or three which means you spread your time more, which means you, you have more, you know, problems going forward with that. So I, I wouldn't be too deterred by it. Karishma? So for me, it depends because you have this thing called small developments and large developments, and then uh, a charge comes in place, which is called SIL, if I'm, if I'm is it the community yeah. construction? Yeah. So and that's dependent directly on the size of the development. So, and that's a new thing because the developments that we've done so far are, have been under that. So we've not had to kind of worry about that or think about that. So that's another additional thing to kind of think about. So the 25 flat development, I'm not too sure whether I'd kind of jump at it, but I'll certainly look at anything within the, the smaller development, the upper limit, which I, I think it's nine. Is it nine? Yeah. Nine. So I would kind of consider it up to there. And yeah, we are still looking for more commercial conversion because 
it's bulk buying. So instead of looking at multiple, it's just easier to do that. And there's, it's easier to kind of secure these types of deals in comparison to a buy-to-let in this market. Yeah. And I think as I'm driving around Stoke and I'm driving around Crewe, especially in this sort of post-pandemic market, there's some very interesting opportunities that are arising in terms of certain buildings that are no longer occupied or no longer going to be occupied, where this strategy works quite nicely. The government are obviously pushing the development of old commercial into residential and bringing in or have bought in or say they have bought in. I'm, I'm yet to see in Stoke-on-Trent, to be honest, any sort of relatively straightforward planning applications. But the idea is that planning becomes a little easier to start to regenerate some of these old commercial buildings into residential. Some parts of the UK, there is funding for that. I know you guys had a good little um, funding opportunity in Wrexham because the local authority were looking to help small developers with that. Stoke-on-Trent, as I said in the last podcast, £56 million is coming into Stoke-on-Trent as part of the levelling up fund. So there's a lot of opportunity out there for this strategy. And any of our listeners that are active in the area and are finding deals of this sort of strategy will share your details at the end so they can certainly get in touch as you guys are ready to go and looking to build your portfolio more and more and more. So I think one of my final questions for you guys is... If somebody's listening to the podcast, let's say they've got a buy-to-let portfolio or they've done a few HMOs and they're you know, thinking about maybe I should develop a couple of flats or maybe four to six flats, any initial tips for them or guidance broadly that you would say, you know, make sure that you, that you consider this or consider that? So for me, I would say get things, everything started early. So there's a few considerations for when you're doing like a conversion and creating in independent dwellings as of such one being utilities like utilities is something that you need to think about before you even yeah. buy the property because they take absolutely forever and without that you can't complete and it will cause loads of delays on your project during the build so i guess the first thing to think about is are you going to separate the utilities and If you are, then start engaging with the relevant providers, whether it's electric, gas, water, suppliers, like at an early stage. The caveat to that is they won't really engage with you until you've actually owned the property. They won't engage with you. So just kind of have all of that process set out. Uh, The other thing that I would say is if you're not doing the splitting of utilities, why? Think about that because that may affect your access to lending on the back end. So if you wanted to sell them as individual units, you might not be able to. If they're not separated out, that means you have to sell it as a a freehold block, which means you're limited to who you can sell to. And therefore, that may affect the valuation. So also think about that. And also just factor in the cost of separating the utilities because it's not cheap. And it's very variable because it depends on where the source needs to be connected to. So if your mains is 10 metres down the road, then they need to run a 10 metre cable, which will cost more than running a one metre cable. So I usually budget in around about £1,500 per flat per utility. So kind of think about that as a cost as well, because it's a hidden cost really that people don't think about when they're kind of developing out. So those would be my biggest kind of tips in terms of like, think about 
this. In terms of the actual build out and the numbers, do you want to just share that calculation that we do? I'll go back to the tip that I gave at the beginning. This is a very much a people business and you you should be wanting to work with people that probably sort of trodden that footpath and that you want to tread. Um, so uh, having done some developments, you want to be thinking about who's done the developments that you want to do, uh, possibly as a JV or possibly as a consulting role or whatever it may be. But having someone that's done those flats would, would, would be advisable, I'd say. So you want to get a good team involved, um, an architect with uh, local planning experience. That's really vital. Knowing the GDV, which is the gross development value, which will be effectively what the whole building will be worth at the end. The cost, as Krishma has uh, talked about um, some of, having worked with someone else that's you know done it, allowed us to kind of know what the cost would be going forward. And that just clears our brain to actually get on with the deal and actually just press the button and go, you know, we're, we're happy with that. Let's go, let's crack on and do it. One, one thing that I would like to add is the PCC or a CML, it's the same thing. And engage with that right at the beginning because a lot of people don't and getting it retrospectively is really expensive. So basically at the end of your conversion, your mortgage lender, if you're refinancing or if you're selling the mortgage lender of your buyer will ask for this. And if you don't have it, you'll have to get it retrospectively and it can cost a lot. Similar to building regs, like if you're getting it retrospectively, it will, it will cost a little bit more. So just engage with them straight from the get-go and make sure you get one. It's not always required, but I would recommend just to make your life easier, even if you don't require it, just get one done. All right, good stuff. That's some really good tips there. And for anyone who's listening who hasn't done it before, I'm sure they'll be scribbling some notes in terms of some of the things to cover. So look, that's been incredibly useful. I think our listeners would, would really um, learn a lot from hearing from you guys who have who have been relatively new to the strategy, but have done a lot in quite a short space of time. Share with us how the listeners can get in touch with you, where they can find you, if they've got deals or just some general communication going forward. How's best to do that, guys? So we're both on Instagram. Krishma is Krishma Dadra Property. And I am Salik Rashid Property. So if you do want to hit us up, I'd say that's probably the best way to do it. And anything, right? really, if you want to have um, a discussion about your developments or where you want to take your property journey and um, uh, some advice here or there about HMOs, conversions, buy-to-lets, yeah, we're open to those kind of ideas. Um, anyone that wants to really be involved in property. Or even if they're just kind of looking to... Um source something that they've kind of got that or they're not quite sure what to do with it we'd be happy to have a look at it so yeah just get us get in touch with us i know stanley and krishma are serial property buyers so um <laughs> i'm looking to build their portfolio quickly and in volume so if you do have anything no doubt they will definitely take a look but look guys that's been incredibly helpful i've really enjoyed it good to see you both and hopefully we'll catch up soon thanks All for right. having us Amanda. you enjoyed today's episode and if so please hit subscribe and share with those who you think would enjoy it too to get in touch with paul and amanda directly please visit their website www.essentialpropertyoptions.co.uk for more information we look forward to sharing with you on the next episode